I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Check engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 271. And today, I'm joined by Todd Havel, a serious whitetail hunter from the upper Midwest, specializing in tracking down bucks on the ground. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show... I've got Todd Havel with me, and as I just mentioned, Todd is a tracker. Now, I've talked to a couple folks over the years that track down deer in the snow on foot, but they've always been people up in the northeast, states like Maine or New York or New Hampshire, where tracking deer is a really popular practice. But what's unique about Todd is that he's adapted this style of hunting to the Midwest. And in particular, he's up in the upper Great Lakes region of northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And that makes him pretty unique in the whitetail tracking world. So in our conversation today, we discuss how he got into the style of hunting, uh, how he specifically identifies mature buck tracks, which I think can be helpful for any of us, regardless of if you're going to be tracking or not. Um, We discuss the approach he takes to following and hunting these deer. And then finally, and and maybe most interestingly, we cover the, the specific things that he's learned about mature bucks by way of tracking hundreds of them down on foot and, and noticed how they move through the woods and how they you know, how they bed, how they maneuver, all these different things. I mean, it's, it's pretty fascinating the insight he's gained over years of doing this. So without further ado, we do not have a pregame show on the books today. So let's take a quick break and then we'll get Todd Havel on the line. All right. With me now on the show is Todd Havel. And Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, appreciate you coming on. I I was just saying before we start recording, a buddy of mine, Ross, uh, listeners of the podcast might recognize him as Ross Haas. Um, he is an even more thorough lurker on the Hunting Beast forum than I am, and so he keeps track of things more more frequently than I do. And, and a while back, he's like, "Yeah, I talked to Todd. Yeah, I talked to this guy. He's he's tracking bucks on the foot." He's doing some really cool stuff, and he's not doing it, you know, in the Northeast where most of these trackers are doing it. He's doing it in the Upper Midwest, and that intrigued me because I've been kind of tinkering around with the idea of trying something like that up in Northern Michigan because I got a property up there. And um, so that's a long way of saying 
that I'm I'm glad that this is finally happening, Todd. And I'm I'm personally I'm selfishly interested in trying to pick your brain. And those are always the most fun podcasts for me. So I'm looking forward to this. Um, so Todd, how did this whole thing come to be? You tracking bucks? How how did that happen for you? Oh, that's a good question. It's a kind of interesting answer as well. Um, I was a farm farm country hunter, uh, central Wisconsin. And I, and I was looking for a, a different challenge and, uh, mid nineties, I headed North to Northern Wisconsin, take on the big woods. And, um, I took on my style of hunting up there, which is find a spot, sit there forever. You know, just don't give it up dark to dark, put, you know, grind the hours out. Um, and in the big woods, it can get pretty lonely. Um, over the years, I probably averaged seeing one deer a day. And, uh, so it, it, it can get lonely. It can get boring. Uh, when the weather is really inclement, you freeze to death. Um, I reached a point of just, it just wasn't in fun anymore. I just wasn't enjoying it. And, um, I needed something as a spark to do something different, uh, uh, something to, to spice things up a little bit. And, uh, I had played around with the idea of tracking and I had done some still hunting, uh, but the, the tracking, I really didn't have a lot of success. But then I ran into uh, uh, information from the Benoits from out east. And I started, it piqued my interest. So I started studying it and started buying their DVDs and their books and, and finding out more and more about tracking. And um, I wasn't sure if it could even be done in our area because maybe the train was different, situations are different, whatever. But uh, I was more determined to try something different. And, uh, that's what got me going. I just studied a lot and just started jumping tracks, and then uh, lo and behold, I became a tracker. How, how were those early years when you were first doing it? Did you struggle, or did you figure it out pretty quickly? Uh, well, I had success quickly, uh, but even at being quick, uh, I'm I always want I expect things to happen. You know, I expect to make things happen. So. Uh, it didn't happen immediately. I thought I was going to be able to go out and just jump the very first track, track them down, shoot them, and this was going to be easy, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. it, it didn't turn out to be that way at all. And uh, after about four frustrating hunts, I kind of drug myself back to the camper, uh, licking my wounds, and I decided, well, Tiger Woods didn't become the golfer. He was the first time he went golfing. So I, I can't expect to be a tracker the first time I go tracking. Yeah. And, and so I decided to try something different. And what I told myself was, I just want to learn something new each time out. Each time out, I want to track and then evaluate, figure out what I could have done different or could have done better, learn from that experience, and then apply it toward my next track. And I thought, okay, that's how I'm going to do this. And, and eventually, I'm going to be successful. Well, Lo and behold, the next day I shot one, so that kind of went out the window, but I was happy to be to taste success right away. Um, and it was an interesting, I'll tell a story about it, a brief story about that one too, because it's, yeah. it's an interesting tracking story, but it's, a, it's really a little different than the normal track you would have. Um, I grabbed a track, and uh, I followed him for quite a ways, and he hooked up with a doe and two fawns. And I sorted that all, all out. And I was pretty proud of myself that I stayed with the track. And, uh, and they, they took off out of that area. Of course, he's chasing her at that point. 
and the fawns were staying with her, which was making all kinds of tracks. And uh, I followed them into an area where they just started circling. She just started running in circles and circles and circles. And I had no idea what to do with this. I, I, I was walking around and around and, and it was like there was, you know, 50 deer in that area, but in, in essence, there was only four deer, but they were just running around and around and around. <laughs> so I made a big loop around the area trying to figure out where they came out of there, and, and they never did. I just couldn't find a track where they left. So since it was such a big loop that I made, I'm thinking, they must be in here yet. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to stand here for an hour. I'm going to my, check my watch, and I'm going to stand here for an hour. And it was kind of on the edge of a swamp, so it was kind of a funnel edge there. And I'm thinking, if they come back around, it, this swamp might push it right along this edge, and I might get a chance at them. And I'm going to wait one hour before I try to figure this out anymore. So I move over about 50 yards or so to where I had a really good vision and stopped and stood there for maybe the count of five, and here they came. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All four of them running. There was a doe, two fawns, and this buck is chasing them. And needless to say, I put the gun up and I took two shots at him and I, I did pretty good. I hit him in the front shoulder two times, about three inches apart on the run. So I wow. did pretty good shooting yeah. and uh, folded him up. He wasn't a monster. Uh, matter of fact, I was a little disappointed because he was about a three-year-old and he had a, a, a smaller rack on him. And, and it was not a buck I normally would have shot. I would have let that deer go. But it sank in. I killed a buck tracking. This is awesome. <laughs> You know, yeah. and it wasn't the typical track where you follow a deer, come up behind them and shoot them. But still, the the fact that I tracked this deer led me to this spot, led me to make the decision, well, he's chasing her around in circles here. I'm going to stand here and, and give it an hour, you know, and it ended up tracking, brought me a deer. And it was like, this is fantastic. So that was my very first one. And uh, I've never looked back since. Wow. So you said just before that hunt, the day before or whenever it was, that you wanted to try to just learn something a little bit more each time you go out. So then the next time you go out, you end up killing one. But did you ever get a chance after that to sit back and think like, okay, what did I learn from that hunt? Even though it was a successful one and you thought that you were going to have to hunt and hunt and hunt and keep on learning every single time for, for dozens and dozens more hunts. Now it happened so quick. Was there still any aha or lesson learned from this unique hunt? Um, from that hunt and every other hunt since I'm, I'm learning, I think I, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 years of this now. Um, I'm learning something every time out. Uh, the art of tracking, um, is an art, it's a skill and you never, you never master it. There's always more you can learn. Um, I, I am just so jealous of and proud of uh, these trackers in Africa on sand, on dirt, with multiple species, and they they can sort out all these tracks from all these animals and stay with one particular animal on dirt. Those those people are superhuman, and uh, there's no way I don't think in in one lifetime I could ever get that good at at staying with a track. I I'm I struggle with snow. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. So it's, it's something you never, you never master. It, you just start, you get a little bit better at it as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So I think it is, it's, it, it, it's a never ending process of getting better and better and better. Do you do anything in particular to try to, uh, 
you know, in some way record what you learned or in any way, like I, I ask this because I like to say that I try to learn something from every single one of my hunts too. But then I oftentimes find myself having hunted 15 days straight during the rut or something and then realize I've never, I haven't taken any time to sit back and think about all these things. So sometimes I'll be laying in bed late at night and then I have to like force myself to think through all these days and what did I learn from that or what, 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 what went wrong there? Or when I start kind of looking at my maps or maybe tracking like I wish I did a better job with a journal or something like that where I recorded everything that happened I'm not good at that do you have any trick or any process um, or system to try to help you record these lessons learned or actually kind of make them hammer home in any way yeah a couple of things Um, the first thing turn your GPS on and track where you go Hmm. and when you get done tracking for the day sit down and if you can transfer that onto a bigger screen, like a computer or uh, monitor or something, take a look at that and, and look at aerial photo and an overlay of uh, topographical map and see what that deer did. And what happens is, is over one time, 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times of watching how these mature bucks run the land you start to think like them. They, they all do the same things. They have tendencies. Um, you start to see the woods like they do after you follow them. And, and why it's so important to, to track it is when you're following them, you're not really paying a lot of attention to a lot of things besides you're focused on the track and watching for the deer. So you're really not catching where they're going and how they're using the land quite so much. But later on, when you start looking at the maps, things start popping out at you. And um, I've got a saying that if a young man came to me and said, hey, Todd, teach me how to track or teach me how to hunt deer, I would say you take a journal and go in the woods and follow 100 mature bucks. And then after you've done that, come back to me. And at that point, you won't need to be taught anymore. You can teach me. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's um, that that's that's the first thing is is map those deer. Uh, um, and I, I hope I don't lose my thought on this, but there's something I want to talk about as far as mapping these deer too. But I want to go to my second point. Um, watch what they do. Not only where they go, but watch what they do, how they react, what they eat, um, how, you know, do they run through a valley? Do they run a hillside? Do they run the top of the hill? Um, when they come to a road, where do they like to cross? And when they come to a creek, where do they like to cross? Um, start documenting behavior. Uh, what do they eat? Where do they bed down? You know, when they, when they bed, where do they bed? Um, how do they walk the land? How do they walk the train? All the little things that they can teach you about their behavior. Um, again, after you follow a lot of them, you really get inside of a, a, a buck's head. You get inside, you know exactly what he's going to do. When you walk through the woods, you say, well, I'm, I'm surprised that deer hasn't been eaten off of this. Or, you know, if he came across here, he'd eat that for sure. Um, or if he comes through this area, I'm sure he'll cross right here more than likely. And, and what th- this does is 
it allows you to make really wise choices when there isn't snow on the ground. So you're able to kind of apply that to shoot probably someone who doesn't always track, even someone who hunts from a tree stand could probably take a lot of that same data and and apply that to their own way of hunting too. I mean, you could almost look at this as just like a scouting method, like go out somewhere, track a few bucks, learn from it. And then even if you don't like that style of hunting, you could probably still apply those lessons back to stands as well. Oh, you, the biggest, the biggest, uh, 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 gain from this tracking is not shooting a big buck. It's what you learn about buck behavior. That's that's the biggest gain you get from tracking. Yeah. Um, because you're not going to be tracking on, uh, in many cases, uh, early bow season, um, seasons when you don't get snow, uh, maybe even seasons when you get really crunchy snow and it just doesn't pay to even try to you know go after them. Um, but you know what these deer are going to do. You know how they think. Um, and I want to now. I want to jump back in time a little bit to to this mapping. Yeah, yeah. Because there's something even more important there to to be discovered, and that is is when you when you map that buck and he goes through that area, if that buck comes back through, he's going to take that same trail, and if he comes through again, he's going to take that same trail, and if he comes through next year, he's going to take that same trail. If he lives to be another two or three years older. He's going to take that same trail. Now, you go into northern regions, and it's all continuous woods, and there's hundreds of thousands of acres. Where do you put a deer stand? Now, when I get to learn specific bucks by following and mapping their trails, when I throw a stand up, my odds still are really bad. But now they went way up compared to everybody else because now I'm sitting on a trail that I absolutely am certain that a, a trophy buck is using. Yeah. And that's huge. That's huge. And is that and something you can get, Sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, is that something that you personally still do? You do still sometimes throw up a tree stand in certain situations and, and hunt a spot like that? I, I don't because I don't, I, I don't do a lot of archery hunting. Um, and stand hunting, yes. I'll, I'll go back and sit you know, with the rifle, uh, jump on spots that, I've, that I know that, that bucks are using or a particular buck is using. Um, uh, not only that, a lot of times I go back and look for his track there. If he got good snow, it, it, uh, cause I know if he's, if he's still alive and he's coming through this area, he's going to come along the edge of this swamp here. And, um, I just know that's part of his route. So I can go and check that every day until I catch him coming through again. <laughs> and, and so it helps me there as well. And if it's bare ground, I can go sit, um, on that spot as well with just, you know, stand or sit on the ground and, and just watch that edge and see if he's, if he comes through, then I, you know, can get a shot at him. Yeah. I know that if, if I had time with my business, I don't get up North until November. Um, so I don't do a lot of archery hunting anymore, but if I was up there for archery season, I'd be sitting all these trails that these bucks are using. And especially late November or late October, early November, when these bucks start cruising, and that rut just starts getting going. They start going out, opening them the scrapes and, and running those edges. Boy, to have a bow in your hand that's sitting on those edges, it, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, your, your odds would go way up. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't get the time. I know spots that I could have killed big deer, and I just can't get up there to hunt them with the bow. 
you know, and then and then after two or three years they disappear. Well, I'm sure they're you know they're dead by then. Mm-hmm. So so as you're describing all these things, um, one of the things I was originally kind of curious to hear from you was was almost like your sales pitch for tracking bucks. But I feel like you've already kind of given us that sales pitch just by describing these things that you're learning from it because it's so obvious that these are some huge benefits to tracking deer, just the lessons you can learn from it. The the It's almost like a master's degree in deer behavior by simply following a deer, which I guess, you know, if you wanted to learn how to paint like uh, Picasso or something, I imagine if you follow Picasso around 100 times or 100 different days, you'd learn a lot. Um, probably just like following around a mature buck 100 times, you would learn a lot too. Um, so that sure seems like a great sales pitch for why you should try this. But is there is there anything else if somebody's listening and they're like, well, you know, it sounds cool, but I don't know if it's for me. Um, what else would you would you bring up? Are there any other reasons why why you personally love it so much, or why you think other people might, might want to consider it? Yeah, um, think of me every time you're sitting in your deer stand, freezing, and your knees are knocking, and you're you're brutally cold, and and you're miserable because you've been sitting there for eight hours, and the wind is blowing hard, <laughs> and 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 you're just you just had had it. I mean, you're so cold you can't even think straight anymore, and you're so bored because you haven't seen a deer all day, think of me running around through the woods having a great time. <laughs> all the adventures. I mean, I carry a camera with me. I stop. I take pictures of things that other hunters never see, animals, uh, pictures of, uh, well, I've got a picture of a huge pine tree that got struck by lightning and it just shattered it, you know. Um, lakes, uh, rivers, beaver ponds that, that normal people don't see. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. A buddy of mine took me up uh, beaver trapping. I, I went with him one day, and he dropped his snowmobile off the truck, and away we went in the woods. And, and I said, where are we going? And and he says, well, we're heading north up in here. I says, oh, that little beaver pond way back up in the woods, way back out there? He looks at me, and he says, yeah, how do you know about that? <laughs> Well, I'm a tracker. <laughs> you know, you get to learn the land. It's, it's amazing what you learn. You see things that other people don't see. Um, I come up on moose. I come up on, on uh, you know, fox, wolves, um, anything, uh, otters, all kinds of different things. You know, things that the average deer stand hunter just doesn't get to see or experience. And uh, so, you know, if you want to sit in the stand, you're welcome to it, you know. Um, here's, here's another nice thing about tracking. Um, you did your scouting and you're going to sit in this spot and you go out there and there's a guy, it's public land. And he's a guy sitting 80 yards away from you, hung a stand. You didn't even know he was going to be there. Now what? Yeah. You know, um, you're, you're a bait hunter. You throw a bait down. Um, then another guy comes and he baits, you know, 150 yards away from you. Now what? You know, I mean, all these things, just, nobody stops me from going and doing what I want to do, and nobody really gets in my way. You know, um, the whole woods is mine, and I just go. That is uh, nice. I, can't, I don't know if, you know, if there isn't, if them aren't good enough reasons, then I don't know what are, you know. Um, here's, a, here's another good stat for you. Let's say I'm successful 5% of the time. I got to chase 20 deer. I got a trophy buck on the wall. How good of a hunter are you? Yeah. Um, how, you know, what's your success rate? You know? Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, 
it, it, oh, I mean, it, it's phenomenal. I, I, I don't know of any other method where I can walk into a wood somewhere I've never been before, have no idea where I'm going, nothing, jump the track, and, and have a deer on the ground in two hours, a trophy deer. And I've, and I've done it. You know, it's, it's, it, there's no other method. Uh, I don't even have to pre-scout. I don't even have to look at maps. Um, there's no other method. That, huh. that can produce deer like that, you know, and, and it, it is tough. I mean, I'm making it sound easy, but it's tough. And this year I never shot a deer. I, the, the one I, one I caught up to uh, was shed. <laughs> I caught up to one in Michigan <laughs> and he was shed. That's a bummer. That's so, a bad You know, one. I mean, that's the way it goes. In, in Minnesota, I, I, I was right on one's tail all day long. It was actually two bucks, Jason Adole. In heat, and I should have, boy, I should have caught up with them, and I never did. I, there was, I was right behind them all day. I got one glimpse of those deer all day long, but I know I was right behind them. They, you know, they, they just, he got lucky. All he had to do was turn and chase that other buck back toward me one time, and it would have been, I would have shot that deer. You know, it just needed one break all day long, and I just never got it. You know, so it just, the odds were against me this time around. In, in Wisconsin, I, I tracked down a nice buck, and I jumped him up, and, and I had one if he shot at him and I took it and I missed. So, um, I went all for three. I could have went three for three. Wow. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it's, uh, you just never know when you go out there. And I think for now, I've never done this. I've never hunted in this style that you have, although I'm seriously thinking about trying it here soon, but I got to imagine for somebody trying this out, it's important to remember that you might just like you mentioned you might go over and over and over a whole season and not get your chance or you might go out the first day or second day and it happens but it's it's no different than any other style of hunting where of course there's a whole lot of variables outside of your control that sometimes just aren't going to go your way but at least in in your style of hunting you do have some amount of certainty because if you find a mature buck track you know that there's a mature buck ahead of you somewhere that you're heading towards. While I could go sit on a, a scrape or go sit in the edge of a bedding area, and I might n- have no idea if there's a mature buck within five miles. I'm, I'm hoping I'm in the right kind of area, but you just don't know. So at least there's some amount of certainty around around your style that this got to be kind of comforting when you're when you're hiking out there. At least you know there's something up there. Oh, the adrenaline flow on a good track. I mean, you, you when you find a big track. The adrenaline flow, it, it just pushes you forward. Yeah. You know, you know he's there and you want to get him. Yeah. I don't care how tired you are. I don't care how beat up you are or whatever. I'm 56 years old and I get on a track. I'm like a 20 year old man again. I mean, I, I want to catch that deer. I don't care how much my back hurts or my hips hurt or my knees hurt or whatever the case may be. If, you know, if I stop and check my bearings where I'm at and I'm four miles away from my truck and I still only have three hours left to go. Um, and I know that if I keep going, I'm going the wrong way and I'm going to have one heck of a long walk back. I still keep going. <laughs> you know, I know he's right in front of me there somewhere and I'm hoping to catch him, you know? Yeah. Um, but it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's exciting. I mean, it, it's an adrenaline rush for me. I, knowing that there's a big buck in front of you, um, it's similar to deer hunting, if, if, uh, stand hunting. Let's say you set up a stand and you, you've got a big buck pegged and you know, he's in a, in a bedding area. Um, and you know, he's been coming out, you've got trail camera pictures of him or whatever the case may be. That adrenaline that you're feeling when you're sitting that stand is an adrenaline I feel every day when I'm on a big track. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting stuff. No doubt about that. 
So how do you how do you get into that situation then? I've talked to a handful of folks over the years that the track, some folks I've heard just drive back roads. Some people drive, you know, pulp forest roads through a national forest until they cut a big track in the snow and they start on that. I've talked to other people that know there's certain ridge lines where they've seen good tracks in the past and so they'll head right to a little terrain feature and walk that kind of stuff. How do you approach the beginning of this kind of hunt? How I do it is I think based more on my age than anything else. I, I do a lot of driving um, uh, simply because of my age. If I was 20 years old, and I felt like putting on 10 miles a day every day, I think I would cut country um, just simply because I think a lot of these older bucks are a little bit road shy um, and and they kind of keep to themselves uh, and or they might be locked out with those and, and so they just never do come out to the road. Um, I think you could probably find more quality deer just cutting country, but being 56 years old, I kind of, I kind of, temper the amount of walking I have to do. Um, so I stick to the roads mostly, or if I know where, you know, apparently there's been a deer from the past, I'll go and check those areas out. I might walk in a ways and, and, and check some of their runs out to see if they're coming through a, you know, a particular buck. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it's, it's a lot of road time. How often do you actually come across a track that you're going to hunt? I mean, is this something like every day you find a track somewhere to hunt or do you just find it over the course of a season, there's just a handful of actual stocks you get because it's been that many days till you catch a mature buck crossing the road? It's getting worse. It, it's getting a lot worse. Uh, the age structure in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan is getting really bad. So those numbers are going down. It's getting harder and harder and harder. Uh, up in Michigan, particularly, um, boy, I, I might... I might work four or five days to find a good track. Wow. Um, it's, it's getting, it, there's numbers, uh, there's numbers of deer, but the age structure is shot. I don't know what the problem is. Unfortunately with the winter we've having this year, isn't going to help anything either. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's, it's getting harder. It's, it's getting a little bit tougher to find good tracks. So you got to work for them. And when you find a really, really good one, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. You know, in the past, in the past, I, Usually don't bother to try to catch up with the same deer again this next day if I don't get them. But I'm starting to rethink that just because of the numbers of, of quality deer that are out there. Um, if the situation warranted, I think I would definitely go back after the same deer another day. How would you – uh, I was going to say, how would you go about that? Would you just hike back into the last spot you got into and just try to pick it up that, you know, 12 hours later or 18 hours later? Or would you – how would you approach trying to pick that deer back up the second day? I would go right back to where I left him. Yeah. That, that's the most easiest guaranteed. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so uh, you're now, you're now driving on the roads. You cut a big track. Tell me how, how do you make that decision? Cause this is probably one of the very most decisions, most important decisions of the whole process, right? Because, Determining whether you're going to actually stalk and track a buck or not makes or breaks your whole day probably in some cases. Um, and this has always been one of the things I always wonder about because it seems like there's a lot of ways you can possibly screw this up when trying to determine if a buck track or if a, a track is definitely a big mature buck or not. Um, I actually watched a video of yours once where you were analyzing what looked like a sure thing big buck track versus a track that might be mistaken for a big buck track. Um, 
Could you walk us through that example and maybe some others to help us better understand how to properly identify the kind of track we would want to follow? Yeah, the first thing, the first piece of advice I would give is um, it's human nature to want to find a big track. So right off the bat, mentally, you're going you're gonna to find this to be true. You'll start to try to convince yourself that tracks that aren't big are big. You'll see that, that questionable track and you'll, in your mind, try to make it bigger. And then you'll look at a series of tracks and you'll, still, you'll always pick out that biggest one and mentally you'll try to convince yourself that that's a big buck. Because after uh, putting on 60 miles driving and you haven't found a good track yet and it's getting to be, you know, 12 o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, and you're, you want to get on a track that day, you're going to try to convince yourself to take that deer. Um, so what I do is I always, I have a say, judge your track by the smallest one. So when you're looking at a series of tracks, look for the smallest one, pick the smallest one out of that track series, not the biggest one, because a lot of times they sidestep. In other words, the front or the hind leg will miss the front just by a little bit, make it wider or it'll fall right behind it and make it look longer. Um, and so that track looks bigger because it's, of course, every track is actually two tracks. It's a front foot and a hind foot steps right in the same spot. So any off step of the hind leg is going to make that track look bigger. Um, so look at a series and, and, and try to determine a good track. One thing I like to see is I like to see the dews hitting. Um, especially in shallower snow. Um, I like to see him sitting back on his feet. That usually designates one of two things. Either that deer is awful tired or he's awful heavy or both. Um, but look at a series of tracks. Uh, I, I often walk back into the woods 100, 150, 200 yards on a track and really look the whole track over, the whole series of tracks to make decisions. I start looking for situations like did he duck between two narrow trees, uh, which tells me he doesn't have any antlers uh, to speak of, you know, if he can go between narrow trees. Is he going through thick brush instead of avoiding it, uh, which is a tendency of a smaller buck versus a bigger buck who likes to take the easiest path. Um, you know, if he comes to an obstruction in a, like a fallen tree, is he willing to duck way down to go underneath it, or does he just walk around it? Again, another tendency of a big buck is to walk around those obstacles instead of ducking under or having to jump. Um, they're bigger, they're older, they don't like to waste energy. Um, so I like to look at a series of, of tracks to make my decision uh, as to what, what if I'm going to take that deer or not. And and you were absolutely correct when you said that's the the most important decision you're going to make all day is whether or not I should take that track. Yeah. Because you do not want to waste your time. Um, unless you're learning and you're just having fun or whatever. Uh, you don't want to waste your time on a some par buck. You don't, you don't want to put four miles in that day chasing a buck that just isn't what you wanted. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. 
because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. So what about when you when you are actually looking at the track and you've identified what you think are some of the smallest tracks of his that you're going to look at and say, okay, this is the most realistic option to look at, the most realistic example. What uh, characteristics of that or um, l- you know, measurements or any other you know, tangible things can we look at to say, okay, yeah, definitely mature buck. You mentioned the dew claws. Um, I know some people, I've, I've even used it sometimes, you know, three or four fingers wide might tell you that's a, that's a big track. Um, any specific things like that that we can kind of take home with us to, to try to help you know, gauge the size of a track or not? Yeah, I don't know what, uh, I, I shoot a 30 out six, so I kind of use the shell casing as a, as a, uh, a guide. If, if it's as wide as the shell casing, it, it's, it's pretty good. If it's wider than the shell casing, then it's, you're getting to be a good buck. I mean, you very seldom see what is wide as the, the shell casing with the bullet. Um, and I don't know, I haven't measured a 30 out six shell. Somebody will have to measure that and decide. I think it's about two and three quarters inches wide. Um, but again, make sure that it's a walking track. Don't don't measure that track if it's running. If he's walking fast, don't measure it. Um, a decent buck is going to take about a two foot long stride. If he's taking more than that, he's probably in a hurry. And when they're, it's just like you when you're running. When you're running, your foot comes down a lot harder because you're jumping. You're you're, you're coming off the ground and you're coming down hard. Um, that's going to change the way that track is going to look. So I always like to judge only from a walking track um, and look for one that's, like I said, a shell casing wide. Um, and I like to see the dew claws hitting. Uh, another thing, too, is I like to see those dew claws setting at least as wide as the track. A really good buck, and I don't know why this is, but almost always on a really, really good buck, the dew claws will sit on the outside of that track a little bit. Hmm. I saw I saw an example you shared where you described wanting a rectangular track versus a V-shaped track with um with the the two sides of the hoof kind of splayed out. Can you can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? What you meant by that? Yeah, pretty much when you get a V-shaped track like that, it's because they're running. Yeah. It's it's almost always when they're hit that the toes spread wide apart and and that doesn't mean it's not a big buck. 
but that just means that it's he's probably running and it could fool you because if it's a really big buck and he runs his track will splay that way as well but so will uh, a two-year-old buck and so will a doe they'll all splay like that when they're running and they'll almost always all hit their dew claws when they're running that's just uh that's nature's traction. I mean, they, they lay back on them and they use those dew claws for traction and, and, uh, and the hooves splay in soft soil and or when they're running to give them the traction, to give them, you know, stability when they're running. So, mm-hmm. um, that V shape is a classical example of a deer that's moving fast. And then that foot splays when it hits. And if, um, if it's, if it's parallel, then they're not most of the time it's not a running track and you can get a lot better gauge again because again like like i say going back to that uh use a, a walking track as your guide when you're checking a track yeah and for folks who never really looked at tracks or paid attention can you share a few of the other things to help someone determine whether it's a walking or running track so you already mentioned display versus non-display track you already mentioned the fact that you know a walking buck might have like a two-foot stride length um there's going to be some different things in the snow or dirt based off the 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 speed and the jumping of the deer too right can you point out a couple things like that that might be worth noticing well, the the biggest thing is is the the faster they're running or faster they're moving, the longer the stride. Uh, if they'll do, if they're doing like a trot or something, it'll be like a three foot gait. Uh, uh, then of course you know that no deer is normally doing that as a walk, and and then you know from there they start running, so they start jumping actually. Then and then you know that could be up to fifteen feet or more. You know when they jump like that, then of course you really know that they're not walking and. And they really pound the ground hard when they when they run like that. So, yeah. you know, again, it's it's just you want to look at a deer walking uh, at at ease, um, and you like to see one that that has is sitting back on his dew claws, and and it's it's as simple as that. Um, and I have noticed uh, from tracking deer to beds and then away from beds, they walk different when they're tired and when they're rested, just like just like you and I. Um, I always get a kick out of it. Um, uh, as I was telling you earlier, I get, I get quite an adrenaline rush when I get on a good track. Um, if I don't get that deer and I, and I track back on my old track, I always laugh at myself when I'm coming out because I have to take long strides to walk in my track that I did when I started out (laughs) because now I'm tired. And when I started out, I had a little adrenaline rush going, so I was taking big, long strides. Right. I always have to laugh. You know, wow, I was really, you know, really walking a big stride. But, but that's a good lesson because deer are the same way. When deer get tired, they lay back on their feet a little bit more. Uh, let's that dew claw show. Um, when you get a big old buck that's really good and tired, he, he drags his feet in an arc-shaped motion. And... and he almost like, just like you and I, when you get really tired, you just don't want to lift your feet anymore. You know, you just kind of oh, slap your feet forward as you're walking when you're really exhausted. And so they walk different and and it'll surprise you how much different that track will look coming into a bed. And then he lays down there for a few hours, he gets rested and he gets up and he walks away. There's been times when it's been so different that it's like, I can't even believe I'm on the same deer. Wow. You know, they stand back on their toes again. Um, and they don't, uh, dew claws don't hit very hard. And, of course, when they're standing on their tiptoes more, the track isn't as big. 
Is so it's it, like, wow, it's, you know, it looks like two different deer, but it has to be the same deer because he walked in, laid down, and got left. Right. Now, is that something that you can identify accurately enough while you're actually tracking a deer that you can be like, in your mind, say to yourself, ooh, based off what I'm seeing in this track now, it looks like he's getting tired. He's probably going to bed soon, so I'm going to slow down or something like that. Like, Do you actually use that to change how you're tracking and, and hunting, or is that something that you know, you've noticed but you can't say with enough you know, surety in the moment if it's, if it's indicative of one thing or another? No, but I, I think I pick a lot of tired tracks because of that. You know, I think I the track just looks bigger because they're tired and they're laying back on their feet more and and dragging their feet a little bit more and and you know they're walking a little more sloppy, which gives it a, a little bit bigger looking track. So I think that just by the nature of the beast, you, you end up picking those tracks. Gotcha. That makes sense. Do, do you ever do you ever try to identify individual deer? And, and come back and, and say, okay, I think this is that same buck. It's the buck that has a little chip off his right side or something like that. Have you ever looked at them that closely? I, I pay attention uh, more so for the time I'm tracking him now. If if his right uh, right rear hoof has the outside of the hoof hooks a lot longer and hooks around a little bit, um, I try to make a mental note of that because then when I get messed up on the track or whatever and I'm trying to sort things out a little bit and I get back on a track again, I'm following it and I get a nice good imprint. I can say, oh, yep, yep, I know this is the same deer. Now, the one thing you got to be careful of is from season to season is a hoof is like a fingernail. It keeps growing and they keep wearing it off. So if that buck chips that hoof, it's going to grow out. It doesn't stay like that forever. So you got to be a little careful about, you know, saying, well, next year, I, well, I see a track here, but it doesn't look, he doesn't have a chip in that, uh, you know, on his left foot. So that can't be him. Well, that they, they're, they're like a fingernail. They keep growing and they keep wearing them down. So uh, that might not be the case, you know, so you can't really judge by that. But the toe, the toe configurations will stay the same. You know, if they if if his toes are really hooked uh, on the outside, uh, on the right foot rear, he he will have that the next year as well. Okay. That that won't change. That that's pretty. That's just the way their his feet grow and maybe the way he walks or, you know, whatever his his skeleton or structure or whatever. I don't you know genetics. So yeah, and you do you you do want to try to keep track of that. You know, unfortunately for me. Um. I live in central Wisconsin, and I and I hunt north. You know, my closest spots are like three, four hours away, so I don't get to hunt. You know, I I've, I shot a lot of big bucks over the years, and I, I don't have time to hunt, so I don't get I don't get a chance to get familiar with deer. Um, it's always been something I hoped I would be able to do at some point in my life, is actually live closer to where I hunt, so I could become more familiar with specific deer. Now, knowing what I know, it would be an interesting experience for me to to be more familiar with my deer and actually hunt specific deer and see what the results would be. I, yeah. I kind of know, I think, what would happen, but it would be interesting to actually put it to, to practice and see, you know, what the results would be. No, I'm sure that'd be fascinating to tr- take that kind of to the next level would be really interesting. 
when you're when you're on a track now, a few other things I've heard some people mention when they're trying to identify or confirm like whether or not they're sure this is a big buck track. Um, I've heard some people look for like antler imprints in the snow. I've heard some people to talk about paying attention to the width of the gate. Um, so the space in between the left and right legs, sometimes like a really supposedly a really big mature buck might have a wider um, gate. Is is there any truth to that kind of thing? Have you noticed anything like that and, and had that help you? Um, the width, if it's a really, really big one, I mean, if it's, if it's, and you just don't run into those up north anymore, let's say one that would probably maybe push the scales dressed at 250 or something, two. 225, 235. Uh, if it gets big, big body like that, you're going to definitely see uh, uh, some width between the tracks. But I don't usually use it as a guide all that much. Most of the deer I shoot anymore uh, across the board, uh, late post rut or whatever, you know, like during rifle season, uh, Thanksgiving, let's say, use it as a guideline. These deer are run down. Most of these deer are going to push the scale to about 180, 185. Um, I've had a, some that were so run down, uh, 165. Um, they, they're, they're just, you just don't see those big, you know, 240, 230-pound bucks like that anymore. And if you'd seen one like that, yes, you'd see that in the track. He would have a wide gate. But I have seen small, young deer with a wide gate. So I don't go by the width all that much. I know there's a lot of talk out there about that, but I just really don't go by width all that much. Um, length, when they're walking, I do pay attention to that. But again, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier. If they're walking and they're tired or if they're walking and they're excited, um, that that length of their stride is going to change. And uh, so, again, you know, I can't really tell if that deer was excited when he was walking or if he's rested up when he's walking. So, you know, maybe he's taking an extra two-inch stride because he's really anxious to get somewhere, you know. And then maybe right. his stride isn't is, is long. Maybe he's a really good buck, but his stride is three inches shorter because he's just exhausted. Yeah. You know, so those are things that I don't put a lot of stock into. I'll tell you what I do put a lot of stock into, how they walk through the country. A big buck walks through the country a lot different than a doe or a, a young buck. They all have their own way of, of walking through country. When you're on a really good buck, it's hard for me to put into words, but you know it because he always takes the easiest route. It's always easy. It's always almost premeditated. And I shouldn't say always, uh, uh, almost always. It is premeditated. He knows where he's going. That buck has been through there 50, 100, 200 times before in the past. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly where he has to get to get through to cross to that next area he wants to go to. He knows when to come out to the snowmobile trail where it's easy walking so he can get around the swamp and he doesn't have to try to walk through a swamp. Um, a good case in point, I was following him last year. He's walking. He went to the snowmobile trail, walked down the snowmobile trail, and then ducked into the woods. And I thought, well, that's odd. But... It wasn't because right up ahead, it got really wet, and it was all underwater there. And he knew before he even got there that if he cuts off to the left, that he could walk right along the edge. There was a hump that he could walk on all the way to get through there. <laughs> so I, I know that deer knew that deer had been through there a bunch of times before. 
because he didn't have to come up to the water, didn't make a decision. He made the decision before he came to the water. So he knew how to get through there. He, he's been through there so many times before. This is a sign of a really good buck. Um, you got a tree leaning. Uh, he won't duck underneath it or jump over it. He'll walk around it. Um, he, he looks for that the easiest path through an area. Um, it's amazing when you go on some of these big bucks and they take you through an area and then you cut off of that deer and you say, well, where am I? And we check my GPS. I'm going to walk out to the road. Well, if I cut straight that way, I could get back to the road a lot easier. And when I do that, every time I always say, you dummy, don't ever do that again, because that deer knew the easiest way through that area. And when I try to take the quickest path or the straightest path through, it's hell. <laughs> I mean, it's nasty. And, and I, I, I have to keep relearning that, have, you know, that, that same lesson over and over and over again. That deer went there for a reason because he knows the easiest way through. Uh, they'll be going along and all of a sudden they'll cut off to the left and they'll be cutting through some thick brush and stuff. And you'll be thinking, why are they doing this? This doesn't make any sense. And boom, they'll pop out onto a beaver pond right at the dam and he'll walk right across it. <laughs> so what didn't make any sense to me beforehand made perfect sense. Now he knew where that beaver dam was. He knew exactly where it was. And he knew if he was going to get through that area, that was the best way across that water. So he makes that, he'll push his way through some stuff, rough stuff just to get to that crossing. Yeah. Huh. And it's, I mean, it's amazing. And you watch this happen again and again and again and again. These, these deer, and, and the more mature the buck is, the more you'll tell that in the track. You'll see that he absolutely knows where he's going to go. He knows where he's going to go, and he knows why he's going there, and he takes you on a real easy path through the area. Yeah. And, and you just really get that sense after you follow enough deer, you'll know when you're on a really good buck. You'll say, huh. man, this is a nice track. Then you start following the track, and you see how he runs the country, and it won't be long, and you'll say, this is a really good buck. Yeah. You mentioned beaver dam crossings. I heard you talk about this uh, before where you, you had mentioned that you've seen beaver dam crossings or be in particular good spots to hunt because deer identify that almost as a bridge across water. So even for someone who's not tracking, but someone who's maybe going to pop up a tree stand, is that something you'd, you'd key in on that you've seen being a hotspot in certain areas? No doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I'll take that one step further. Um, use your wood skills. Um, uh, go, get in there. Check that wherever there's a beaver dam, there's mud because it's water. It's wet. Go in there and look for sign that a big buck is crossing. Go look for some big tracks in that mud. If there's a big buck using that crossing, he's going to leave some tracks there. And if there's big buck tracks crossing, hunt it. That's a high percentage spot. That's a very good spot. I, I killed a uh, really nice 10-pointer bare ground up in uh, Minnesota that way here about, I don't know, four years ago. Uh, my area had dried up. I mean, I just wasn't seeing any deer in my area, and I didn't have any snow, and I thought, well, let me let me check some maps. So I started looking at maps, found an area, aerial photos. You can see beaver dams on them really easy. And, and uh, I found a spot where there was a couple beaver dams on a river drove back in there, had to push through brush with my truck like you wouldn't believe to get back in there. And then I walked back in and got along the bottom of that, that river. All along that river edge, there was a buck running up and down that 
that edge tearing the heck out of everything. Trees, rubs, scrapes, everything. I mean, he was just really active, and that's a very good sign of a buck that's just just made it. He's he's old enough now. He's like a he's like a teenage boy. I'm big and strong now, puffing his chest out. I'm going to act tough, and they'll start ripping a lot of stuff up. A really, really old buck usually doesn't do a lot of that rut activity, um, but a young one just feeling his oats will really do that. And he had that whole that whole edge of that river tore up on one on that one side all the way up and down, and there was two beaver dam crossings. I had three days of season left. And I went down to the river edge, and I sat there, and I had 150 yards to one crossing and 175 to the other. And I sat there for two and, it was two and a half days. I, the first day, it was half a day after I scouted it. I didn't even, I didn't worry about all the scent I laid or nothing. I was there. I hunted. I sat there for half a day, didn't see a deer. Sat there for the next day, all day long, and a doe and a fawn crossed one of the beaver dams. The third day, which was the last day of season, I grunted him up to that beaver dam at noon. He came, I, I, I picked up my grunt call at noon and I blew it and he was happened to be on the other side of the river and he came right out to the beaver dam and he stood right there and I shot him. Wow. <laughs> so he was, and, and he was exactly what I thought he was. I, I'm sure that was the same buck that was doing that. He was um, a really nice 10 pointer, uh, three and a half year old, maybe four and a half, but I don't think so. Um, just a really nice, decent, really good buck. Not a monster, but a really good buck. And and, and I, I have missed a few. You... Sorry, I was gonna say I might have missed it. But did you say that you found a track too when you were looking at all that rub, all those rubs and rut sign, or were you? Did you make the decision to sit there simply by the fact that you knew the the beer dams were there and you saw the sign, or was there a track that said, okay, yeah, for sure, there's a nice buck passing through? Oh yeah, uh, um, in the in the in the scrapes there was good tracks, and in. Uh, the, the the crossing that I shot him on, did, I didn't see a good track there, but the other one that I was watching as well did have. Gotcha. So I was more expecting him to come out onto the other one, but but he didn't. And there was actually a third beaver dam crossing on that same river further upstream yet, and that one just didn't have any sign at all. So I just crossed that one off, and I thought, well, I'm going to watch these two. And it was, this, this determination was made with, uh, you know, a quick run-through one hour scout of that area I've never been in before. You know, I just see all this sign. I made a quick determination. I thought, okay, I'm going to plop down in here and I'm going to stay here for the next, I got two and a half days of season left. I know there's a good buck work in this and I'm going to stick here, you know, and I'm just going to wait it out. So is that so, your typical, uh, is that your typical plan when you don't have snow? You're going to go into the best looking area based off of terrain and a quick walk through scout and hopefully find a good track. But otherwise, without snow, it's, it's usually a sit and wait affair. Or do you ever try to track in dirt and mud? I won't try to track on bare ground, and I'll tell you why. Um, that's during the rut. When I'm rifle hunting, that's that's the rut. And these bucks, uh, four miles, six miles, eight miles, that's nothing for these deer. There's no way you're going to stay with them that long there's there's no way that you're gonna follow a bare ground track for for three miles um and then when they start if they hit some areas where you know it's really not soft you have a heck of a time uh a good buck will leave tracks in the leaves and you can follow them uh, but it, it's just too time consuming and your your nose is to the ground all the time so you're not, even if you did catch up with him, you wouldn't see him. I mean, he'll see you before you see him because you'll be looking at the ground all the time. 
So bare ground, I just don't mess with it. But what I do is, if I do have bare ground, is I'll go back to these areas where I know there's been a big buck uh, previous years that I've tangled with, and and uh, and I'll go sit them out. And that's basically my, you know, and then if I don't have anything to go by, I just get out on foot and I move around. I do a lot of calling and I look for signs. And uh, sometimes I get lucky. So a lot of times I find a, a, a doe and heat in the area. And, of course, that area is going to be hot for about a day and a half. And uh, I've had good success doing that, too. I've killed, I've killed several good bucks doing that, just finding, finding a doe and heat in an area. And, and uh, it could be some of the most exciting hunt you'll ever have. A couple of years ago, I shot a really nice bare ground buck up in Minnesota doing that. Uh, there was a doe and heat on a flashing that was about oh, two miles back in off the road. And I walked in there scouting it, ran into a, bumped a little buck, and there was a lot of activity, a lot of sign in there. And I thought, well, I got to hunt this. It's pretty hot. I came back the next day, and by 10 o'clock, I had my buck on the ground. And before I got out of there that day, I had saw five different bucks. And if you hunt where I hunt in Minnesota, five different bucks can be three seasons worth of hunting. I saw it one day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, and, and the deer, I, the buck I shot, the buck I shot was chasing a doe. And he was a split brow uh, eight pointer. So he was actually a 10 pointer. He had double split brows and there was another buck with him and he was a better rack. He, he was a 10 pointer, but he was a younger buck. He had long tines and he was a 10 pointer, real dandy buck, but he was younger. And you could tell he wasn't the dominant one because he trailed off on the side while the, the one I shot was right with the dole. And, um, I opted to actually take the one that didn't have as nice of a rack because I knew he was an older buck and I was sure hoping I'd run into that other one another year, you know, down the road or so. Yeah. He was, he, he was a, a really good buck and he didn't even run away. I shot that one buck. They ran off. The doe came right back through about 10 minutes later and she walked right by me and he walked right by me too, the 10 pointer. And then when I got down to check on my shot, a little spike buck come running up. <laughs> got a little he got, he, I almost could have poked him with my barrel. He got so close to me. <laughs> Jeez. But that was, you know, that was by in-season scouting and, and getting in there and, and, you know, and hitting the ground. Uh, you know, checking, just checking. Just, just staying active and, and looking. I heard another time you talking about a situation like this where it was a bare ground situation and you you, I think if I remember this correctly, you went back in to an area you'd previously walked. <clears throat> Maybe you're tracking a buck on uh, something you described as rut routes. So these bucks taking specific rut routes that you knew of based off of previous tracking. And you knew to, you know, if you didn't have snow, you'd go back and check something like that. Uh, can you describe what you meant by that? Um, I, yeah, I don't know exactly the exact uh, story you're talking about. But yes, that's that's exactly you know what I was talking about earlier here. I know where these specific bucks run, and if I don't have a spot, um, you know, if I don't have snow to track, I go right back onto their their runs that they've used from previous years, and uh, and that's you know, again, you're talking hundreds of thousands of acres, and you're narrowing it down to one trail, you know, and and if that buck happens to move on that trail, you get a chance. Um, and that's that's a, and you don't find those without, without tracking. Yeah. Um, 
you know, you just you just don't know. I mean, every edge is good. Any edge can be good in the woods, but there's so many edges that which one do you pick? You know, uh, but if I have a if I have a um, let's say I tracked a buck through an area last year, and again um, I'm going to add rubs are like fingerprints. When a buck makes a rub on a tree, if you study that rub and he makes another rub somewhere else, you can tell it that's the same buck. He'll rub at the same height. He'll pick the same sort of tree. He's got burrs on his antlers that rub that tree a certain way. Um, You can pretty much tell one buck from another when you're looking at the rubs. So let's say I go in an area and and I was following a buck through there the year before on snow. And I go in there on bare ground the next year because I don't have any snow to track. And I see rubs opened up on that same rub line along that same route. So I know that buck is still alive. I know he's still there. You know, so I'll sit it. And then not only that, while I'm following these deer, I'm finding places where they are bottlenecked down, where they do cross. And that's the spots I pick out. Because I know if he's coming through anywhere from here to go to there, he's coming through this spot. Um, and you find those again, you find those by tracking deer. Um, heck I went, what do I, the best spot I ever had in my life. I never hunted. I followed deer through there all the time, bucks through there. And it was a crossing, like it was unbelievable. And I always told myself, I got to sit this crossing sometime because man, this is every time I chase a deer, they come through here. Well, one year I decided I'm going to actually just put some time in sitting there. I'm going to just. I'm going to take two or three days and just sit there because it's such a good spot. So I walk way back in there and it was logged out. Oh no. (laughs) So so I was like, wow, can you believe it? You know? So I kind of abandoned it. But the one thing it doesn't change is the land doesn't change. The tree, you can cut the trees away, but the land doesn't change. So, Oh, let's, I don't know. Fast forward three or four years now. Um, this last season I said, Hey, I'm going to take a walk back in there. And I'm going to see what's going on. I haven't been back there for years. So I drove. I, I could get within about a half a mile of there and then uh, parked my truck and I walked the rest of the way in. Went on to that slashing where they had cut that out. Come up on top of this big hill and I'm looking down in the valley where they always came through there every time. And I stood there and watched for a while. Grunted, did, hit my grunt call a few times, see if anything would show. Um, and I walked down in the valley and guess what I found? One lone really good buck track coming through there. <laughs> wow! You know now, you know that's that's that it, those things don't change. I mean, these deer use these some of these. If you find a spot like that, those are gold. Because if your buck dies, the next buck will come through there too. It's just the way the land funnels, and it and you can't sit and look at maps and find those on maps. I've tried. It just doesn't work that way. You, you find them by following deer. And then, then you have something. When you find one of those, if you want to sit all day long, boy, a spot like that is gold. You know, you, you take your ground blind in there, pop it up on top. And in that case, there on top of that hill, you can see down in that valley, beautiful, put a, put a pop-up ground blind in there, sit in there all day long, every day, and eat your granola bars or whatever, and, and just keep watching that crossing and, you know, and sometime in that week or two weeks that you're sitting there, uh, chances are a decent buck might come through. Yeah. Can you, you know, can if, you, if that's the kind of hunting you want to do, I mean, and that, and you can't get better odds in that North country. Yeah. 
Can you describe that area? Like, why was it? So why did so many deer come through there? I'd, I'd love to hear like the, what the terrain was that funneled that movement. Um, it was a combination of several things. Um, one was, uh, there was two lakes that necked down the land and then the, uh, topography, there was, uh, really rolling hills and valleys there and just the way it laid out, it just brought them right through. Interesting. And again, you know, I mean, I could, I can look at maps and find 50 spots like that, you know, but for some reason that I'm not seeing when I'm looking at it myself, every deer came through there. I remember I took one, I took one, uh, two miles away from there. I started one on a track and he started heading in that direction. And I got a half mile in and he was still going that way. And then I got a mile in and he's still going that way. And I got about a mile and a half into it. And I'm thinking, I wonder if he's going to go through that funnel, you know, through that little, that little valley there. And sure as heck, it was two miles away when I started. I'm guessing where he took me right through that spot, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, and, and that was every deer that came through there, every deer, um, they always ended up funneling through that. And it's still good today. Uh, if a person wanted to go and sit hunt, um, I don't know a better spot to take, try to take a deer, you know, it's, it's, it's tailor-made and, and it's beautiful because nobody knows about it. Nobody knows their way in there. They, they, they close the logging roads off. You wouldn't know. I, to, when I came in the back way to, to find that spot, I had a heck of a time finding it and I knew it was there. I had to keep looking at my, my uh, aerial photos to, to locate my way back in there from the backside because the, the roads were, it was all, it was a mess and the roads were blocked off and, you know, old logging roads were, you know, plowed in so you can't get through them. And, and uh, if I would try to just use my senses to get back in there, I never would have found it. So it's a spot that's going to sit there and it's going to just, it's going to sit there for years and I'll, I'll bet you won't see a hunter back in there. Huh. Nobody, yeah. nobody's going to go in there. Yeah, hard to find that kind of spot without, uh, like you said, actually following a buck that did it and seeing them do it time and time again. Um, and that, that that kind of brings me back to something you talked about right at the top, which was just how much you can learn from tracking deer. Um, and, I, and I want to drill more into that. I didn't get to initially, but what are, what are some of the other things you've seen after watching so many bucks do what they do, have you identified any trends or patterns that you can now say, well, I've seen so many deer do X. It's kind of safe to say that most bucks like to travel with the wind this way, or most bucks like to travel. I I don't know. Is there anything like that that um, stands out to you, like big ahas that you can now point to after all these years of tracking them? Yeah, the wind is a very, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really, really good point. I, um, when I was younger, I used to read every magazine I could to try to figure out deer and try to understand. You know, I just would soak up everything I could. And, and one year, they'd come out with an article, Bucks Travel with the Wind During the Rut. And in the next year, lo and behold, another article would come out, Bucks Travel Against the Wind During the Rut. <laughs> yeah. And in the next year, it would come out, Bucks Travel Quartering into the Wind. And they always had a theory as to why they were doing it and what was going on. And, and here's what happens. And, and I, I don't want to pick on people or whatever, but these guys are making determinations based upon a very small 100-yard snapshot of that buck's 
eight mile walk that night. Okay. They're sitting in a tree stand and this buck comes walking by them. They test the wind and they make a determination. And unfortunately, if the next buck they see follows the same pattern, now they've already dis- they've already convinced themselves that that always do the bucks always do that buck always walks into the wind. Right. If he saw two bucks in a row walking into the wind, but he only saw 100 yards of that deer's six mile trail. Now, when you're following deer tracking them, you get to see the whole six mile trail and. The determination I've made by checking the, you know, knowing what the wind was the day before and watching the way they walk and how they do it and what they go, bucks go wherever they damn well want to go, and they don't care about the wind one bit. If a buck is here and he wants to go over there, he goes, he goes over there. And, and if he's here and he wants to go over there and he's been there before, which he has been, he'll go the same way he went the time before and the time before and the time before and the time before. And it doesn't matter which way the wind is going. Now, I'm not going to tell you that deer don't use the wind because bucks, big bucks are using the wind all the time. Um, a big buck may circle downwind of, a, of an area to set check for does. If he knows there's a doe bedding area there, he may set check. If, there's, if he has, uh, assumes that there's some kind of danger or if he's scared, a lot of times they'll circle to get downwind of that. They'll use that, their nose to, to, to wind things. So they're using their nose, and they will use their nose on occasion, um, more so than others. But it doesn't; they don't use the wind as the determining factor as to where they're going to go. And and it's simple, and this logic has been used many years already. If that's the case, all of our deer would end up in California <laughs> because we have a we have a westerly wind. Right. Okay. For the most part, we have westerly wind. So if if the deer had to travel into the wind all the time eventually they'd all make their way to California, you know, because they'd have to keep going yeah. in the wind. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very good point. And like you said, everybody likes to kind of postulate about what they think bucks are doing based off of a little snapshot as you described. And that's uh that is the downfall of, of watching a deer just for a short period of time versus walking for so long. What about, um, what about, uh, bedding areas? This is another, uh, specific scenario where a lot of folks like to theorize, um, you know, I know you're active on the hunting beast. A thing that Dan likes to talk about a lot is how lots of times he believes the bucks will J hook into a bedding area, go downwind of a spot where they want to bed and then work their way into that location. Have you ever noticed anything like that? Yeah. A, a, a buck will more than likely do a J hook before he, uh, before he lays down. Um, I got my own theory on that. Uh, I know Dan postulates that, that they circle down wind of the bedding area so that they can scent check the bedding area before they go in there to lay down. Um, and, and that may be true, uh, especially in, in what the type of hunting he does. Um, he's hunting oftentimes early season and it's a bed to feed pattern that this buck is on. And he's more than likely going back to the same bed that he used for the last month every day. Okay. Um, I'm hunting deer in the North country and I'm hunting deer during the rut. Um, they J hook, but I think the reason they J hook is different. And and my thought process is, is I think they J hook so that if a predator is following their scent trail, it leads the predator past them and they can see the predator and get up and leave before the predator makes the tire J hook and they're gone. 
that gives them it gives them an opportunity to see if something's following their track and then they can just get up and take off. And believe me, I've been that predator and I've been made a fool out of a lot of times. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yes, they do like the J hook. It's like a dog. I I don't know if you have a dog or not, but almost every dog before they lay down, they got to make a circle. I don't know why that is. They have to circle around. Why does a dog circle around every time he's going to lay down? I have no idea. You know, but they do. But it's a tendency that bucks do have. You know, deer do have that. They like to do that that J hook, and then they like to lay down. Which, if you're tracking, is a very good, important lesson to remember because their J hook can be pretty big. Uh, you know, 50 yards or so. Um, so when you're tracking a deer, if you're not watching left and right all the time, you're going to miss them. Um, they're not going to be in, in front of you. They're going to be off to the left or right. So if you're not watching, that when they do their J hook they'll they'll get away they'll they'll jump up and run away and you won't even know they go, they're gone and then you'll come across the bed right huh yeah that's a good a, a good thing to be aware of for sure are there are there any other things like this whether it be a commonly held belief like the deer walk with the wind in their faces that you've kind of debunked based off of what you've seen or anything else like that that uh that stands out to you other than these two examples we just talked through yeah, here's a good one. If people are going to laugh at this. Uh, big bucks aren't very smart. And, and, <laughs> I, and I know you froze up too. See, there's always that, there's that hesitation. It's like, they're not, you know, <laughs> they're not very smart. They're, they've learned how to, uh, they learn how to survive, but they're not very smart. And, and being human, we, we try to give them a lot more credit. We try to give them the ability to think and reason and logic. And they don't. They just react. They react to stimulus, and that's it. They're just they're just animals that react, and and they're they're good at surviving, but they're not smart. They don't think if they if a buck could think and reason like we would, we'd never kill one. Yeah. I mean, they they would if they were as smart as we were, unless they're stupid, unless they're foolish, they they would never die. You never you'd you'd never catch them. You know, uh, they would, but they just have tendencies, survival tendencies that, that keep them alive. Um, but don't give them too much credit. You know, they're, they're not all that smart. They're not, they don't think in reason and logic. Yeah. The the unfortunate thing about that is that we do think and use logic and we still screw up more times than not. (laughs) Yeah. Here's my classical example is people like to give deer human traits, like drive by somebody's house, and you'll see a, a lawn ornament's a deer, and it's always a family group. It's a buck, a doe, and a fawn, mm-hmm. right? When have you, ever, have you ever seen a buck and a doe and a fawn together in the woods? Never. Yeah, not happening. Never happened. No, it, that's not their way. But we want to make them human. <laughs> yo, yo. That's, <laughs> hence uh, the whole Bambi scenario and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from 
regeneratively raised, grass-fed and finished cattle. Heart and soils. Unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. What other tricks like this have you kind of, or not tricks, but um, I'm wondering as a, as a big woods hunter, sometimes from a tree stand, um, I've always noticed it's hard to identify any way to, to pattern deer movement in a scenario where there just isn't a whole lot of terrain change. I mean, you mentioned one of the things that being just edges. Um, is there anything else that you've found that, that, um, directs deer travel that you're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of these buck tracks following along, or is there any kind of edge that's better than another? Um, any kind of that kind of thing, or, or I don't know, like little high points in a big, in a big woods area or, um, any other features that are worth thinking about whether we're going to track one or sit over one that might be worth looking for? Well, rubs are a good indication that there's a good buck using that. Um, if you have perennial rubs and, and you can kind of tell that it's the same deer, uh, especially if there's fresh ones from this year, you know, that buck is using that edge. Um, and there people find this hard to believe. Um, but bucks pick their routes. And they stick to their routes. And then if that buck dies or if there's other bucks in that area, each buck has his own set of routes that he makes. Now, sometimes they use the same edges, you know, because you know, it's just a natural funnel in the area. Like I was telling you about that one spot where all the bucks seem to come through there. Um, but they have their own paths. And when, once, they, once they're taken out, once they die or whatever, the other buck doesn't take over his paths. He has his own paths as well. Um, so you have to use like rubs as an indication. That's a very good indication um, that he's using that edge. And, and it's a, be a, that would be a good edge to hunt because you know bucks are, you know, or a buck is, is making rubs along that edge. Um, that's probably the number one indication, looking for tracks. Uh, look for big tracks, which when you can, where you can. Uh, if you find, if you're following along an edge and you, you find a spot where it's soft and you see some of the really nice buck tracks coming through there um you know that buck is using that edge it's a good place to hunt um there's a million edges out there so if you can't find some indication that tells you that a good buck is using it um it's just not a good and here's another here's a huge mistake i see a lot of people make they sit at home now with with all this technology we have and they pour over late night uh over these maps and they look at these aerial photos and up to northern Wisconsin, and they find this two lakes, like I was telling you about, like that situation I had, and there's right. a bottleneck coming through there, you know, and it's like, oh my God, 
look at this, there's 5,000 acres above it, and there's 15,000 acres below it, and if that deer wants to come through, they have to come through there. They have to, okay? And then they go in there and they hunt. Well, guess what? First of all, somebody else has already found that, <laughs> and, and it's probably been hunted perennially for 50 years, okay? Um, usually, the mature bucks know about that already. They know where they're being hunted, especially like Wisconsin, when they'll throw a bait out in there, too. Those those bucks avoid those spots like the plague, um, and every year somebody falls for that same trap and they hunt that same spot again and again and again and again. You know, so just because it's a good funnel doesn't mean it's worth hunting. What makes it worth hunting is if you know a big buck is coming through there. I'd rather take a crappy looking funnel on a map that shows good rub line and tracks than a funnel that looks like it's funneling down thousands of acres into one little spot. Um, you get, you gotta, there's gotta be a buck using it in order for you to shoot a big buck there. You can't shoot one there if he ain't using it. Yeah. So ultimately that's a, that's a mis- comes down to that on the ground scouting. Yes. You want to get in there. And, and here's another thing that, um, don't be afraid to get out there during season and uh, don't worry about scenting it all up. Don't worry about leaving your scent. Don't worry about it. Get out there and scout. Get on. Get out there. Find out what's going on. Look for, you know, hot sign. Look for maybe a doe in heat, uh, uh, you know, an area being worked up really hard. Uh, and get in there and hunt it. Look for, watch for doe areas. So, you know, see, see where you see doe sign, where you kick those up, where they're browsing, uh, where there's deer poop. Um you know, most of these seasons, like the rifle seasons and so forth, are they're during the rut. Um, there's no better place. Uh, if there's those there, I'll guarantee you the bucks will be there at some point. You know, then you've got edges coming away. Then that's where you get your maps out. You know, when you're out there, look for rub lines that follow the lines, the edges coming in and out where there's a doe area. Um, then look at your maps and see where it may be a good spot. And that's a good, pl- a good place to set up. You know, get in there and don't worry about leaving your scent to I, I, I track bucks. I go out and I walk through the woods. The next day I come back and there's a buck walking in my track. Huh. If a buck walks in my boot track that night, you think he's afraid of my scent? Yeah. Do you think I scared him out of that area? He's it's, walking in my track for heaven's sake. It's interesting. You know, he's not afraid of my scent that I left behind there the day before. You know, I, I don't, it's not a, you know, I had a, I had a good friend that kept walking back in and, and buy a really good sign every day to hunt a different deer. And he kept walking by there. And one day he just woke up and he said, you know, I got to hunt this. There's, there's a big buck here. And he had walked through there. How many times hunting this other buck way back in further back in. And the first night he sat there on that ridge coming up out of the swamp, he shot that buck and it was a dandy. It was a boot. Jeez. And he had left his scent there every day that he, when he went through there to go hunting, you know, and uh, so two lessons, don't worry about leaving scent in the woods uh, and then um, hunt sign, hunt, you know, get out there and scout. Yeah. So, so speaking of walking around the woods, whether you're scouting or, well, there's, I imagine there's one way you're, you're hunting in there when you're, when you're scouting in to hunt, but then there's another way you're walking when you're walking in there tracking a buck. We kind of skipped over 
the the final phase of a tracking hunt. We talked about how you find a track. We talked about identifying the right track. We never did get to the point where you're actually walking down that track, how you're actually doing that. Um, and I figure we better we better touch on that before we wrap this thing up. Um, something I'm curious about that I that I haven't talked to other guys about when it comes to tracking is how you think about wind direction when you're tracking a deer. So what if you're driving down a forest road, you cut a big track, it's a giant track, you're no doubt about it, this is a big buck and it looks fresh. But you step out of the truck, you walk 10 yards out there and you see that the wind is blowing on your neck straight down the trail towards where that buck is. Do you just say, I, I'm not gonna, I can't do it because my wind's gonna be blowing right where he's probably at and it's no good? Or do you say, screw it and you track that buck anyways? Well, I, I, I'm going to track him because he could be four miles away. And so, and he could be, and he could have turned, you know, 50 times during that. And he may be going, he might be coming back at me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where he is. He could, he, you know, he could make a, a, a one mile loop and, and be coming right back the same direction that he came, that he went in. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I pay no attention. There's only one time I pay attention to the wind when I'm tracking a deer. Um, is, and that's after I bump them. If I bump them, I let them go. I, I, I give them about an hour to calm down or whatever. And then, and then I, I take up the track again. Um, when I get to the point where I'm catching up to him again, where he's down to a walk and, and he's going really slow, he isn't going to go that far. The total, he probably won't go over half a mile from where I bump him before he'll lay down again. So by the time I get to the point where he's walking now, he probably isn't more than a couple hundred yards away from me. Um, and then I, I, I slow way down. But, and I mean, I'm, I'm talking so slow that if you sat and watched me, you would have a hard time knowing I'm moving. And, uh, but I won't do that if my scent is blowing right to that deer. I figure he's within 200 yards of me yet. If the, if the wind is blowing right at him, I'm sure by now he's already caught my wind. He probably's already blown out of his bed if the wind is going to him. There's no way I'm going to spend the next three hours trying to creep 200 yards knowing that my scent is blowing right to him. Mm -hmm. if, if I got the wind not in my favor, I will move a lot faster uh, because I, I feel like the gig's already up. There's no sense in, on, you know, going through that painstaking depth creep to try to get close to him when he's probably already blown out of there because he's probably already caught me. Yeah. That's the only time I ever pay any attention to wind at all whatsoever. Otherwise I never pay attention to what way the wind is going. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I, you know, and I don't even care about how much noise I make because again, it bothers me. It always bothers me when I crack a branch or something when I'm walking through the woods, but he's probably three miles away. You know, he isn't going to hear me. Um, yeah, here's another thing too. I, I do this with the guys in a tracking school. I have him, I have him stand and then I take off walking and I tell them to yell at me when they can't hear me anymore. And you'd be surprised. You can't hear very far in the woods. You can't hear very far at all. So you don't have to worry about making much noise. You know, I mean, again, if you're in that death creep part of the the tracking after you bump them and you're, you're, you know, he's going to probably bed it down a couple hundred yards ahead of you and you're going very slow. Yes. Then you really want to make sure you don't make any noise. I test the ground with every step. I, I feel for anything that could snap or whatever. And I push it out of the way with my toe and try to get a, you know, firm foot on the ground 
Um, other than that, when I'm going through the woods, I don't really care how much noise I make. It doesn't matter. That deer is not any, probably anywhere close to me. And, and uh, you know, here's another thing, too. Uh, a lot of guys want to go really slow and really watch for the deer when they're tracking. I go as fast as I can. I go as fast as I can. And because, again, that deer is probably four miles away from me, six miles away from me. If I go slow, I'm not ever going to catch them. I'll run out of daylight before I catch them. So I got to put the miles on in order to catch them. So I just go fast. I just go as fast as I can. I try to, I try to watch as, you know, I always try to stay really active. Um, I try not to look at the ground any more than I possibly have to. And I try to move as fast as I can. And I keep looking for that deer. Matter of fact, sometimes it works in your advantage to go really fast because a lot of times you come up on them so fast that if they're distracted, you close that last, 75 yards really fast and and they might have been pawing the ground and eating or something or or maybe they kind of dozed off a little bit or or whatever the case may be you make up that ground a lot quicker when you're moving faster and if there happened to be at a slight disadvantage at that very moment you make that ground up really fast and bam you're on top of them before they know it yeah then you do get to jump on them and you get a chance you know i I came up on one that was um, just so happened. I got really lucky. A doe and a fawn, a doe and a fawn had went through right in front of me, and they walked by him. He got up out of his bed. He's standing there mewing at him. Nah, nah. It was it was hilarious. I came up right behind it. I'm standing there watching this buck mewing at this doe and this fawn, and he doesn't even know I'm there because he's so distracted with this doe and the fawn. Nah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it was funny, and he was, he was a young buck, and I knew the track wasn't real good when I took it. It was one of those days where I just wanted to stretch my legs and have uh-huh. a little fun, and I, I, I grabbed the track, caught up to him. It didn't take me that long, and, and he's, I videotaped him. Then. I, I leaned my gut up against my leg and grabbed my video camera out, and I videotaped him. He actually walked up to me, and once he realized that there was something there, he stopped and he starts doing a head bob at me and he starts pawing the ground <laughs> and I'm just standing there looking at him, you know, and I wouldn't move. Here's a guy in blaze orange right. standing right there in the open, you know, and, and then he walked by me and he kept going. And then I pulled the camera out of my pocket. And I videotaped him as he walked away. I laughed. That's cool to see. <laughs> but going fast got me close to him, you know, and, and he was distracted at that very moment. It just got lucky, you know, and, and, uh, I opted not to shoot him cause he was a young buck, but, it was it was a fun track and it was you know and I I had that happen before I, I I jumped on a track and I practically ran because he was in open hardwoods and I thought there's no way he's gonna bed down in these open hardwoods. I was wrong. I'm jogging along, went down through a valley, came up the other side, and I froze right in my tracks. He's sitting there on the ground, fifty yards away from me, underneath a cedar tree. And it's like really. You know, and again, it was a it was a buck that didn't really have a real big rack, and I opted not to shoot him. And uh, I took a bunch of pictures of him, and and then I whistled at him, and he he boy, when he realized I was there, he got out of there in a hurry. Now, what about a situation where, um, other than actually seeing the buck and bumping it, um, other than that scenario, you're going really fast, you're trying to cover ground. When do you know to start slowing down? Is there some kind of something you're seeing with the tracks that's indicative or something with the habitat that says, okay, now it's time to put on the brakes. We're getting close. The only time I would really ever do that is if they started feeding really hard. Um, if they start meandering, I get a little bit edgy. I start watching a lot closer. I may slow down somewhat, but I've learned from experience 
they can start meandering for different reasons and, and you waste a lot of time. More times than not, you're wrong thinking that they're going to lay down and you're just wasting time. Um, if they feed really hard, if they really start pawing the ground and they really start tearing up an area, really feeding, they're going to lay down. Um, if they stop and nibble uh, old man's beard or some mushrooms off the side of a tree or they dig up some filler ferns, um, take a little couple of bites, um, that doesn't mean they're they're going to lay down. Uh, that that more times than not, they won't even. Uh, so I, I just don't, I just keep moving. I, I've learned, I, I, I went home so many days never catching them that I've just taught myself to go fast and, and not worry about it. Um, I, I, here, here's another saying I have. I've shot 0% of the deer that I didn't catch up to. <laughs> yep. You know, and and that's that's an interesting interesting statistic. Yeah. You know, I've I've never killed one that I didn't catch up to. So I got to catch up to them, and and if my if my percentages go down because I'm moving fast, which I don't really think they do, um, even if they did, I still can't shoot them unless I catch them. Yeah. You know, and you learn this lesson in the north uh, after chasing hundreds and hundreds of them and, and just coming home, you know, dragging your tail behind you because you didn't catch up with them. You know, you learn to go fast. You learn to just to go. You got to catch them in order to kill them. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Do you do you know, any, and speak, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, speaking of that, there's one time a year that I like tracking the best more than any other. And that's late. The later, the better. The later, the better, because the later you get, the more they start dropping away from the rut and more toward feeding, and they don't travel as much. Now, it's a little bit harder to find a track because the less tracks they're making, the harder it is to find a track. But if you key on areas that you know there's a good buck in and you're watching for them and you catch them there, you're going to catch them because he's probably not going to go real far, you know, maybe a couple miles um, uh, sometimes half a mile, you'll catch them uh, because they're just they're just not moving as much anymore. They 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 slow down a lot that time of year. So that from that standpoint, they're tired, they're exhausted. All they want to do is feed their belly and lay down. Um, and so it's a lot easier. Your percentages go way up uh, the later it gets. The, unfortunately, the later it gets, usually the deeper the snow gets, which makes it a lot tougher to track and so forth. Um, there's always advantages the deer get, no matter what situation you're in. But that's the time of year that's probably the most fun for me. Um, I think my success rate goes up a little bit more that time of year because of that. When you're when you're out there tracking a situation like that, it's late. There's lots of snow on the ground. You've been following track for a long ways. Then you see that situation you just detailed a second ago, where lots of meandering and now like heavy feeding everything tells you, okay, this buck is getting ready to bed. It's, it's, it's close. Um, you're within the zone. Now you're just creeping along at this point. Do you do this? Do you stop and stand still for five minutes with your binoculars and scan everything? Do you have your gun up and ready? Uh, what, what, what happens when you realize that you're in the zone? Does anything change or do you keep just slowly moving until it bumps? Well, first of all, I have the gun ready all the time. I don't sling it. Um, I took the sling off years ago. I, when I was practice shooting, I learned that when I have my sling on my gun, 
when I throw my gun up with the sling on it, my sling swings back and forth like a pendulum, and I watch my bead move back and forth with the swaying of the sling. And it, it, it's amazing how much that sling swinging will throw your gun. <laughs> and if you've got a deer that's 100 yards out there, that'll push that bead enough to miss them. It's hard enough to shoot them when they're running, then let alone trying to compensate for a sling that's swinging back and forth. Yeah. So I keep the gun at hand all the time. Um, so I'm always at the ready with the gun. Um, again, uh, it's hard for me to slow down too much. I'll tell you where I like to slow down. Here's where I like to slow down. When I get an advantage, let's say I'm going down through a valley and I come up on and I crest the ridge. I'll, I'll usually go up the backside of that ridge really fast. I usually pick up the pace, hit the top of the ridge moving fast, and then freeze and stand still. And then I, that's where I'll stand for a minute or so, and I'll just really survey the area. Because now I've got a height advantage, and I can see quite a bit. So I'll just stand there and watch for a while. Not for a long time, but for a while. Uh, matter of fact, the one I was telling you about this, this last year that I caught up to that was shed, that's how I caught him. I came up through a valley, came up to the top really fast, got to the top of the ridge, and I froze. And I stood there and I started surveying the area, and sure enough, he was out there feeding. Didn't have any antlers on him, so I thought, well, it must not be my deer, but I followed the track right to him, so I know it was him. <laughs> so and there were little drips of blood as he went along, too. I videotaped that, so I, I think that he had just shed. I actually tracked, backtracked him all the way to where I started again, trying to see if I could find where if he you know, dropped his antlers oh, somewhere. Man. But then by the time I got where I started, it was already getting dark, so I didn't go try to backtrack them any further. And the next day, I wanted to see if I could shoot a deer, so I didn't go back looking <laughs> again. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that was, you know, on that particular deer, I came up through the valley fast, and then I hit the top, and I, and I stood there watching. And sure enough, I, you know, I caught his movement that he was feeding. So other than that, I, I try to keep moving. Uh, again, here's, here's, okay, think of this scenario. So you're, you're, you're following a deer, and he starts meandering, and he starts feeding hard. Okay, so now you're convinced he's going to lay down. Okay, let's say you're right. Let's say he does lay down. But let's say that was eight hours ago, and he laid there for two hours and got up and took off again. Now, you just spent an hour covering that last 150 yards to the bed, only to find an empty bed. What did you gain? And I've done this. So, you know, I mean, this is what happens. So I try not to, again, you know, I try not to err on the side of, of wasting time when I don't know. I, I like to move. I like to, you know, I'll be more, I'll be tuned in a little bit more. Believe me, my radar is going full bore when, you know, I start seeing these signals that he could be going down. I, you know, I get a little bit more intense. Um, but again, I, I, unless I absolutely have, you know, I mean, the only way you really know if he's there is if you see him. So um, I don't like to waste a lot of time. I've just wasted too much time on tracks and not caught too many deer. And, and, and so I've just kind of, you know, when I saw the lesson, I have to keep re learning all the time because I, I want to slow down. I really want to start picking the woods apart, but, you know, you just don't catch them. You don't get them. Yeah. yeah that's... But, and here's another thing, too, I want to uh, touch on. When you come up on a bed, you're tracking this buck. You come up on a bed. I'm going to tell you a story. I tracked a buck. He's in central Wisconsin here. And it was a muzzleloader season, and I came up on his bed. It was a nice bed, nice buck. So I got my camera out, and I was taking pictures of the bed, and I laid my muzzleloader in the bed, and I took pictures of that to give an idea how big the bed was and stuff. And I had a little fun with it, whatever. I got the camera put away, grabbed my muzzleloader again, and then I started 
taken off on the track again. And I walked about another 20 yards and I blew him up and I, he jumped up and he ran away and I never even fired a shot. I, <laughs> I just couldn't get the bead settled on him. The nice Dan, dandy, uh, nice eight pointer, you know, and, 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 uh, I just couldn't get the beat on him. It was muzzle loader, and you get one chance, you know. So I just waited too long, and I just I never got the beat settled on him. Never took the shot. But the lesson to be learned in this is when you come across the bed and it's empty, and he didn't run out of it, so you know you didn't push him out of that bed. Be on super super red alert because I've seen it many times since that day where they'll get up, they'll move forty yards, twenty yards, thirty yards. They'll they'll poop pee. Uh, maybe nibble a little bit more, stretch a little bit, and they'll lay back down. Mm-hmm. And then they'll get up and do the same thing another hour later, and they'll lay back down. And so oftentimes when you come up to an empty bed, that doesn't mean he isn't very close yet. Matter of fact, there's a good chance he's close. So when you come up on an empty bed, be on full alert because he could be in another bed just 30 yards away. And I've had that happen many times to the point now where I just get excited when I see an empty bed. If, if I can tell that he's not running out of that bed and I haven't scared him, I get excited because I'm thinking he's right there because more times than not, he is. Huh. That's a very interesting observation. And you, it's something you think about, uh, you know, just when you consider deer a buck bedding behavior in general is that, yeah, the lots of times they'll have a little spot. And then like you said, get up, stretch, urinate, bed back down, maybe just reposition and, uh, it's interesting. I, I, you might, you know, pan out in the way you described where you might be right there, just 40, 50 yards away. And you might not even know it if you're not paying attention. The biggest buck I didn't, I didn't get him. I never got that deer, but the biggest buck I ever tracked in Northern Wisconsin, that thing was like a horse. Oh my goodness. Um, the first time I encountered that deer, there was a bed and he got up and he moved over. Oh, I don't know about another 10 yards and lay down again. Then he got up, and he walked right back to the first bed, past the first bed, and he circled around, and he went back into some thicker brush, and he laid down about another 30 yards over. And I came in, walked to the first bed, walked to the second bed, backtracked him to the first bed, walked past the first bed, and started circling around toward that really thick brush where he was, and he blew up out of there. And he blew out. It was so thick I couldn't see him, but he was right there, and he, 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 I scared him so bad, he actually tripped and plowed the ground. He just he hit the snow and just slid wow. along, and then he got up and he ran out of there. Boy, he made, no, he made a lot of noise when he went took off out of there because he fell down. But uh, he was a brute. He was just a, he was a brute. And, and, uh, but he had three different beds, right? That was just a, you know, that classical example of that. He had gotten up you know, two other times and moved around and repositioned. Could be the wind. It could be just he just wanted something different. Um, who knows why they do what they do, but he had, you know, I see that all the time where they get to an area where they want to hang out. They'll just reposition a bunch of times, get up, stretch a little bit, you know, move around and then, and then rebed down again. I never did get that deer. I was after him for a few years and he, he dropped off the radar. So I'm sure he's dead by now. Wow. That's cool to be able to see that though. And actually have, you know, proof that that actually happens by getting to see the beds and, and bump them out of there. That's another great benefit of what you're doing. Just getting to see that kind of sign firsthand is uh, really useful. Um, well, Todd, we have to wrap this up because I've been keeping you here for a pretty long time. Um, but I want to ask you just two more questions before we do, before we do wrap it up. And the first of those, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, is, is there anything that you do that 
most other trackers, most other deer trackers would think you're crazy for doing? Is there anything out there that everybody else that does your style of hunting would be like, Todd, that's nuts, but you still do it. Is there anything that comes to mind when I, when I lay that scenario out? I don't know if technique or, or anything that I actually do. Um, not, not really. Um, but I will say something that, that kind of gets in a, a strange realm and a lot of people, you kind of, kind of like to turn and walk away. Um, the, it's the mental aspect of it. Uh, I think there's something much greater than we're capable of understanding that comes along with the mental aspect of it. I believe I'm going to kill every deer I chase. I believe I'm going to get every one. I believe I'm going to be successful all the time. And I think something changes when you have that mental aspect and not just that it pushes you to try harder or anything like that. I think there's something even beyond that, that, that things happen. I've had weird, strange luck that just is hard to explain. And, and it always seems like when my mental attitude is there, things go my way. Yeah. How do, how do you put yourself in the position to have that positive attitude? How do you keep that mental state strong without losing hope or getting discouraged or getting frustrated? That's a good question. And if I could figure that one out, I'd write a book and be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's a mindset. It, it's, I think it's, it, it's a practice skill. It's a learned skill. Um, you see some people run around and, and um, you know, they talk about the glass half full, glass half empty, you know, mentalities and stuff. And I think the people that have the positive attitudes and, and so forth, um, it's a practice. It's a learned skill. Um, if you don't have it and you practice it long enough, you will become it. So if, if you, if you tend to be negative or you tend to not have confidence, then fake it till you make it. Yeah. Just keep telling yourself, keep telling yourself, you know, keep telling yourself, I'm going to get this deer. I'm going to catch this deer. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to shoot this deer. You know, I, I did that muzzle loading. When I first started muzzle loading, I, I have to pull the hammer back on my muzzle loader and I'm used to running a 30 odd six pump. I don't have to pull a hammer back or anything. That's totally foreign to me. I, you know, I don't, I'm not used to that. And, and so I was really concerned when I took that muzzle loader in the woods that I was going to freeze up at the moment of truth and try to pull the trigger without pulling that hammer back. So what I did was I told myself probably a thousand times every, when I first started you carrying that gun, pull the hammer, pull the hammer, pull the hammer. I kept telling myself that as I'm walking along, you know, just mentally in my head, pull the hammer, pull the hammer, pull the hammer. I kept doing that, kept doing that, kept doing that. When I shot my buck, my first buck with that muzzle loader, I don't remember pulling the hammer. <laughs> but you did it. But I did because it won't fire unless I do. Yeah. So if I could do that with the hammer, you could do that with your mental attitude too. I'm going to get this buck. I'm going to get this buck. I'm going to get this deer. I'm going to get this deer. And I'll tell you, if you're out in the woods and you and you stop walking and you check your your uh, GPS and you find out you're three miles from the truck and you're getting tired and all of a sudden you start thinking about it. Oh, my back hurts. Oh, I'm three miles away. Oh, I don't know how many. You know, it's you'll quit. You'll quit. You'll give up. If you, if you start, if you, if you let that voice inside your head start to mess with you. So you just, you, and you can train yourself out of that. You can tell yourself, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to get this buck. I'm going to keep, I'm going to get this buck, you know? And, and, and like I said, it not only helps you from that standpoint, I believe there's something else besides that. I think, think the universe bends to you to some, ex, to some extent, just by things that I've experienced in my own life. It's, it's amazing. You know, uh, 
uh, when your attitude is right, how incredibly lucky you become. I think there's something to it too. I'm 100% right there with you. There's some, uh, I don't think there's anything more important in the hunting pursuit, more important than your mental state, than being positive, being mentally tough, mentally focused. Um, and, and, and you, you described a lot of the things that I try to do that self-talk is so important. Like sometimes no matter how, how much of a positive person you might be or how confident of a person might be, at least in my case, I find myself, I think I'm pretty darn positive and, and pretty confident in a lot of things I'm doing, but I'll still, you'll still have that doubt creep in. You'll still have that frustration creep in, but I think, I think there's value in being able to identify when that's happening and say, Hey, okay, well, I see what's happening here in your own mind. And you kind of say, all right, that's that frustration creeping in. I see it. I'm stopping it right now. And, and just start telling yourself, like you just said, it's, you know, any second now it can change. You just got to stay ready. Any second now that big buck might come and walk in her. Any second now all the bad luck you've been having, that's going to change. You just got to, like you said, will it into existence sometimes and, and let, you know, if you're positive and, and, and working hard and doing the right thing, sometimes the universe will present that opportunity. You just got to be, be ready there to take it. And um, what, what's interesting is, is I actually started doing a study on this a little bit and I never really followed through on it, but um, I, I've got all the Benoit information, uh, all the books and the, the DVDs. Are, uh, and and uh, one thing that I noticed, because I studied this quite a lot, uh, the mental aspect of things, when I was going through the Benoit books, I started noticing that popping out of, of what was getting written. And so I started, one day I went back through and I started copying all the times that that was mentioned. Um, don't worry about what's going on at home. Stay focused. I'm going to get the deer. I always think I'm going to get every deer I hunt. I mean, this, those themes are in, in the Benoit books. And you may think they're superb trackers or excellent woodsmen. I think they're fantastic manifestors. I think they're tapping more than just hunting, you know, and, and, um, Bruce, uh, Bruce Townsley, when he wrote the book and he spent a lot of time with, uh, Lanny, the oldest boy, he made a statement in the book. He says, Lanny, when he enters the woods, he's in a Zen like state that focus is so sharp and, and it must've impressed him because he impressed him enough that he actually wrote it into the book. Yeah. So, you know, that's that, that mental aspect of that. I, you know, I think the Benoits are, are, they're successful because of it. Hmm. And I think if you look at anybody, I don't care if it's business, personal sports, I think you're going to see that theme. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. I think anyone who's reached a level of excellence, there's a very strong mental mastery component, being able to, being able to master your inner self and your attitude and all those things that to your point, I think is a very consistent across those in that top tier of, of any kind of pursuit. So, and, and like you said, it is something that doesn't get discussed a whole lot when it comes to hunting and tactics and stuff. Like you said, sometimes people want to kind of turn and walk away from that kind of discussion. Um, it's, it's a little bit outside of the realm of pinch points and tracks and grunting and bucks, but, um, but really there's a whole lot to it. I think, um, so I'm really glad you mentioned that. It's uh, it's hard to put a finger on exactly how to control it, like you said. But um, but I do think there's something to be said for it is being it is a learned trait, it is a practice. It is something that 
you know, if you're thinking about it and, and trying to be more focused, trying to be more positive, trying to be, you know, enter somewhat of whatever, the, whatever Zen means to you and, and each, each person individually, um, being in that state where you're fully present, where you are focused, where you are, um, I, I don't know. I mean, like you said, it's hard to put words to it sometimes, but having that mental mastery, that mental focus and control and toughness, I think really is maybe the ultimate differentiator between your average run of the mill person and the excellent, the expert, um, the, the person who's kind of mastered anything and, and hunting is right there with anything else like football or business or whatever it might be. So that is a perfect way to wrap things up, Todd. Thank you for bringing that up. All right. Now, I know that you've got a few other resources online that, that people that want to learn more about this kind of stuff and more about your experiences and expertise. Um, there's some places they can do that, right? Where can they go online to find that? Yeah, I've got a uh, probably the, the best spot is uh, I've got a Facebook group. Um, I've got a Facebook site, but I also have a group. And the group is kind of the fun place because that's where we do uh, a lot of our our stuff. It's a lot of interaction. Uh, uh, I do some online tutorials, uh, live, uh, videos. I share a lot of things on that site and then, then people can interact back, which is the fun part about it is, is, uh, people can interact back to me on that. And, um, that's a Facebook group page. It's Misty river trackers base camp is what I call it. Okay. And then, uh, and then I also have a website, uh, uh, www.mistyrivertrackers.com and that's uh, a good place where I kind of draw everything together. Uh, I have all most of my resources listed out there or how to find all the resources that I have. Um, it's also going to be on my online store for uh, tracking class. I'm offering a tracking class to teach this and um, uh, other things. I'll have logo hats and so forth. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be talking to a a clothing manufacturer coming up here about uh, a tracking jacket, hat, um, and some other things. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to that. We haven't really talked too much about it yet, just kind of in the interim beginning stages of talking about that. But if something like that comes available, that'll be on that store too. That's my uh, website is going to be my store basically for selling things. Um, right. And then I also like to mention one other site. Um, uh, Troy Spooner uh, started a site, uh, www.oldschoolwhitetails.com um, and he asked me to have input and help and, and uh, it's been a fun project. He wants to stress the, the old style way of doing things. Um, uh, not a lot of fancy gear, not a lot of you know high tech stuff or whatever. Just kind of like how your grandpa would have hunted. You know, that kind of thing. Getting back to some of the roots of, of uh, hunting and uh, public land, big woods type situations. Uh, He's going to kind of cover a lot of those kind of things on that site. So um, a lot of really cool stuff out there. Uh, that's uh, www.oldschoolwhitetails.com. So go check that out too. Great. Yeah, there's something to be said about just the woodsmanship. And uh, sometimes that's a lost art. So I think uh, that's great that, that you guys are covering that kind of that kind of content and making sure that folks can, can keep learning about that. I, uh, I think there's value for sure. So, and there's been value with all of this, Todd. I uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time to, to share all this with me and our listeners. Um, I've really enjoyed it. So, so thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun. I, I've had a good time too. Let's chat again soon. All right.
And that is a wrap today. So thank you all for listening. Appreciate you tuning in for this one. Hopefully uh, you've been inspired to at least pay attention to tracks a little bit more. I know I have. So until next time, best of luck shed hunting or scouting. And until we chat again, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.